Uh, it's always really, really good when you stand up to speak and uh, some, really the thrust of what you've got to say has already been prophesied. It's very encouraging. Thank you, Chris Fulton. That's very, very good. Um, if you have a Bible, please do turn to Colossians chapter 2. But we do have a Bible. They're really great. You can buy them lots of places. We, the, the passage for this morning is Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 to 23. But chapter, um, verse 16 begins with a therefore. Now, hopefully you know that if there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's therefore, which means you need to read the bit before. Makes sense. So we're going to start reading at verse 9, which Mike uh, spoke from last week. We're going to read from verse 9 to verse 23. In Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility or the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belonged to it, do you submit to its rules? Do do not handle, do uh, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, I just need to get my clicker, which I left in my bag. Um, in the week, hopefully, 
a whole number of our small groups are looking at the, uh, the book of Colossians. If you are and you're looking for study notes to help you look at the book of Colossians as we're going through it on Sundays, uh, on my blog on the church website, uh, I have this morning posted a link which has study notes for Colossians up to and including this passage. So if you're preparing for this coming week in a small group meeting to look at the text, then that's there for you. Okay, since our passage starts with verse 16, let's jump in there, where it says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you. In verse 18, it says, do not let anyone disqualify you. The word there for disqualify is like uh, an umpire in a game who judges that you're no good, that you've failed, and perhaps that you need to be sent off. Uh, yeah, perhaps, perhaps this guy did. Uh, but Paul says, as far as it goes with you, in your Christian life, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Now, we obviously can't stop people from forming judgments about us. We can't stop anyone from speaking words of judgment to us. And so Paul's getting here at what do we do when people speak to us like that. Now, is there anyone here from Northern Ireland who doesn't mind coming up on the stage? Yeah, come, come, come. I need some help this morning. Have we got another microphone somewhere? It's just there. You see, uh, how many of you like going to a cafe? Oh, come on. I know that coffee shops are booming. Okay, come up. I just need your help just to bring something to life for me. I'll just tell you what to say in a second. I, I, when I was a student, I remember going to a cafe with a couple of guys from Northern Ireland. So I need your accent. That's what I need this morning. And um, I offered to take them out for a drink, uh, a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, and had to talk some things through with them. This is in the student Christian Union setting. And uh, I bought them a drink cup of tea each, had a cup of coffee myself. We said, this is at the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford, which is quite nice, not the poshest place in the city. But anyway, I bought drinks for them. We sat down, I started trying to talk to them, and they said to me, I can't believe how much this cup of tea costs. They said, I can't believe, can you do that for us, just to bring it to life, is that all right? I can't believe how much this costs. Yes, thank you. Okay, no, stay there, stay there, stay there. Because then I started trying to talk to them about the things that we were trying to talk about, and I asked them a couple of questions, and they looked at each other, and they both said... I can't believe how much this costs. Okay, thank you very much. That, that will do. Thank you. Okay, now, I hope you've got that kind of... That was my experience. Now, it's a small thing, isn't it? Um, but actually, they looked at each other, and they were both astonished that I had spent as much as pound fifty on a cup of tea for each of them. And um, they both agreed that I'd spent too much money when you could, I could have taken them somewhere and just bought a tea bag of my own <laughs> and, and got a cup of tea for them without spending the extra money. And um, the thing is that those words, I can't believe how much this costs, they rang in my head with, with a wonderful Ulster tones that kind of brought it to life for me. Uh, I, I love... Ulster tones, don't you? It's actually just good to have an excuse to have some people come up and share their (laughs) Celtic accent with us. Um, I love it. But it rang in my head for years to come. Every time I went to a cafe, it's taking Bev out for a a drink or just whatever, I would have this little voice in the back of my head. (laughs) I can't believe it. I can't believe it. 
And uh, it actually diminished my enjoyment of cups of tea <laughs> and cafes for some time to come because they, they were seemingly more righteous than me and it was a problem. And what I want to try to get at here is that this thing about being judged isn't necessarily about some massive thing where we've been chucked out of a church or something. But actually, even in the small things that we say to each other, you know, the tongue is a powerful thing. And a few words of disapproving judgment can make a huge, huge difference. I felt belittled, actually, in that moment, and it lived with me. And the truth is that those things happen to us quite often. What do we do when other people judge us for what we eat and drink and for other matters? The truth is that Jesus has declared that we are accepted. It's good, isn't it? The word of God says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know, some people this morning really, really need to hear this. Because what's happened is that someone else's criticism of you, some other Christian's criticism of you, has left you hanging back on the edge of church life, afraid of what else might be said to you. As I was praying last night, I felt that God gave me a few specific things to share. Um, Words of knowledge, as the Bible describes them. I felt that there's someone here who you'd had something pierced, some part of your body pierced at some point, and your mum said to you, that's it, you're no good now, you've done it. And those words have stayed with you and landed with you, and you know that that's you. I had another picture of someone who was actually in a church setting, and they were trying to serve God, and they were doing a very practical thing of handing out books to people. And I thought the book they were handing over, well, I think it was a green book, handing out books, handing out books. And someone came in, and they thought you were doing it wrong, and they told you, and you felt judged, and you thought, I'm just trying to serve God, and it was cut across, and the criticism landed. With you, there's someone else who very simply went into church wearing a hat. I think it was one of those little woolen kind of hats. Someone just told you to take it off because it wasn't the right thing to be doing. But it landed with you and it stayed with you ever since. It was like you felt it was like a slap in the face. I don't know if those things, I don't know who, for whom those things land. I do know that for many of us, Small words of criticism where people have judged us over small things that don't really matter have landed and they make a difference as to what we expect from Christians going forward. They make a difference to how we relate to other Christians. They make a difference to our engagement with the church community and it matters and it can't be left just rumbling on because it's to our impoverishment. The answer when we have been We've, we've felt that judgment, we've felt the criticism, we've taken it on board, and it's changed the way that we think and feel. The answer is to forgive. Yeah. It might seem a really small thing to forgive someone for something that they said, uh, but there is huge power yeah. in forgiveness. And so, just as I'm saying this, some of you know, actually, I need to forgive that person. Some of you, you may need to forgive family members who've tried to bring you up to follow the law, but the way in which they did it has at various points cut you and diminished your your joy in the Lord, actually, and diminished your desire to connect with God's people. There is forgiveness that needs to take place this morning. And we'll get to that. When we come to sharing bread and wine, 
perfect opportunity for us to express forgiveness. So if anything that I've said just there from these couple of verses, has come, things have come up to mind, we are going to deal with that this morning. I believe that for some people there are some significant, um, long, by which I mean long-standing and somewhat controlling uh, patterns of thought that are going to change this morning. As you speak forgiveness over people who have judged you, actually there are going to be spirits of rejection and stuff of significance that's going to shift as we break bread later. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay. There's a whole number of things listed in this passage, aren't there, that you might wonder, what's that all about then? Worshipping angels and new moon festivals and so on. Well, there are two kinds of things that are going on here. You know, there's a debate amongst scholars as to what was the problem that caused Paul to write a letter to the church in Colossae. Because there seems to be something up in the church, and so he wrote a letter saying, uh, this is what you should think, this is what you should do. And people have tried to work out for, for many years, what was the problem? It's like listening to one end of a phone conversation. And there's clearly someone at the other end has got a bit of a problem, and you're listening to the solution being offered and trying to work out what the problem is. It's a little bit of a task. The two main suggestions that people have made are, firstly, on the basis that there were lots of Jews in Colossae at that time, that the church was struggling with what was actually a fairly common problem in the early church, namely that people who had been converted to Christ were being pressured to act like Jews. That was a problem that went on in the church for four centuries, at least, that uh, unhelpful religious traditions were being put upon people who had come to Christ. The other thing that people suggest is that there were all kinds of alternative spiritualities that belonged in Greek culture. A couple of times in this series we've heard uh, people talking about Gnosticism, which is what happened in the fullness of time as people who'd become Christians, connected with alternative spiritualities in Greek culture. Eventually that formed something called Gnosticism, where people took on board certain superstitions, philosophies and rituals from Greek culture and brought them into the church. And actually, we know that the early church battled with both of these At other points in the New Testament, it's really, really clear, say the church in uh, Galatia, Paul writes very clearly, you're in danger of being pressured to become like Jews, and he speaks to that. In other situations, like in Corinth, people were getting caught, obviously getting caught up in these Greek ideas of having particular sort of superstitious practices and so on, and Paul spoke very clearly to that and said, you don't want to be doing that either. Probably what was going on in Colossae was a mixture of the two, a bit of both, because some of the things that Paul speaks against in this passage were more Jewish, unhelpful religious traditions, and some were more Greek, alternative spiritualities. So here's some of them. Some of the things that are mentioned here as unhelpful religious traditions, there's circumcision that's mentioned there. Actually, we're circumcised spiritually, but the physical circumcision, Paul says, no, it's not that I'm talking about. The food laws and the Sabbath were both Jewish things. Other nations 
did not have the Sabbath. A pressure to, uh, to stop working on Saturdays and to keep the Sabbath was a Jewish habit and a Jewish pressure. Uh, the food laws, you know, sometime about 150 years, a bit more than that, before, nearly 200 years before the time that this letter was written, uh, the Jews had rebelled uh, against the Greeks who were ruling them, and the Greeks, in order to suppress them, had said, okay, we're going to force you to give up your religion, we're going to force you to eat foods that are unclean. And they took Jewish men and women, and they imprisoned them, and they said, we're only going to give you pork to eat. And people chose to starve to death rather than eat unclean foods. From that time on, Jews that ate unclean foods uh, came under a lot of community pressure. They were seen as really very disloyal, as betraying their cultural heritage. So food laws, don't eat this, don't eat that, was a part of Jewish culture, which some people were trying to put onto these converts in Christ. On the other hand, there's alternative spiritualities. It says in the New International Version from which I read, in verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. It's one of those phrases in Greek that is a bit of a challenge to translate. Uh, there's a new, new international version. Did you know that? They published a new one this year. Uh, a new, new international, super new. It's just called New International Version 2011, I think. But they've revised it. In the new, new international version, it there says, since you died with Christ, to the elemental spiritual forces. And actually, that's what most translations say one way or the other. If you have a New Living Translation, it will say, since you died to the spiritual powers. The English Standard Version says, since you died to the elemental spirits. What Paul is speaking about here is being caught up with other sorts of spiritualities than the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. There's then a few things that are listed off. It's not obvious which category they fall into. False humility. Actually, the word in Greek, it just says humility, which is probably ironic in talking about false humility, but sometimes the Jews used the word humility to refer to the fasting that they did. Sometimes Greeks talked about humility to refer to some of their spiritual practices. Angel worship could be Greeks worshipping angelic beings, something that Jews would never do, or it could refer to Jews who know that the angels are worshipping God and who had certain ways of trying to join in with the worship of the angels to God. And the text isn't clear one way or another. This thing about not handling, not tasting and not touching, that could be Jewish or Greek. So uh, people have their opinions as to how much one culture or how much the other culture was putting pressure on the church in Colossae. The main point here, well, there are two main points. The first point is, well, actually, it was a bit of both. Whether it was more one or more the other, we're not sure. If we were to stop for a minute and think about ourselves, uh, some of us would probably feel that religious traditions and dealing with the heritage of 
unhelpful religious traditions is more of an issue than the temptation to engage in alternative spiritualities. But for some, who perhaps have come from different backgrounds, maybe you've dabbled a bit with Buddhism, um, yoga, and different things, actually, coming from that to Christ, maybe it's more of a problem for you to work out what is allowable, what alternative spirituality is about, and actually you've not got any religious baggage to worry about. So probably the church in Colossae was quite a bit like us in the same kind of a way. So the first point is it's a bit of both. Um, The second point is that actually all of these things are pretty much the same. They all refer, uh, one way or another, to external rules, things that we're told that we ought to do or things that we could do, that if you do this thing, then things will go well with you. If you do this thing, you eat the right stuff, you have parties on the right day, if you avoid touching those things, if you say these kinds of things about the angels, if you do the right stuff, then things will go well with you. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, we don't face quite the same issues today. I'd be really surprised if any of us have have had a problem this week with being forced uh, to abstain from pork. And it's got in the way of our relationship with Jesus. It would be a surprise. Okay. I mean, I'd be quite surprised if anybody had been tempted to engage in worshipping angels this week. Just check in. Because I just want to... No, I'm talking to the right people here. Okay. So, so those are not our issues. But these, these things about unhelpful religious traditions and alternative spiritualities are absolutely there in our lives and in our culture. There's a little picture that will come up. There we go. I've used this picture before. This is a little picture of an African church where uh, a Western guy has gone and just taken his culture lock, stock and barrel and has got people there wearing Western clothes. You can't maybe see all the starched collars as well as if I had the whole picture there. But actually the practice of taking our religious heritage and bringing it together with the message of Christ and expecting people to conform to our culture as well as responding to Jesus, is just widespread. When people travel to other nations to take the gospel, this is something that thankfully now people are quite savvy about and think quite carefully, what if my belief is my culture? What is simply the gospel? Let's try to separate those things out. There's an irony, actually, in that as many people... When many people went out from this country and tried to impose British culture along with the gospel all over the place, and we've seen that that has been quite unhelpful in a number of ways. Interestingly, though, as people, as Christians, are now coming to this country from around the world, quite often people bring their culture with them to the extent that they struggle to join in with a multicultural church because they, they want to meet within their own culture still. So these are things that in different ways, different ones of us you know, struggle with and find to be real issues in our lives. The pressure to conform to a religious culture can very easily get in the way of a relationship with Jesus. And then, of course, there are all kinds of alternative spiritualities today, whether it's yoga or things to do with angels, fairies, it's quite big, uh, crystals, spirit guides, Various kinds of dancing in order to cleanse your aura. All of those things. 
Hey, look, I live in East Oxford. I, I know about these things. It's uh, where it all goes on. Okay, in a sense, it doesn't really matter uh, whether, as I said, whether the Colossian church was more caught up with unhelpful religious traditions or more caught up with alternative spiritualities. Because what they had in common was this thing that if you do this thing, you know, then you'll be all right. If you do things right, then you'll be all right. Verse 22 says, all these things are destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. So let's just pause a little bit and think for a few minutes about what the Bible says about man-made rules, because this is all about man-made rules. Uh, And as verse 22 says, all this stuff that's being talked about, they're all man-made rules. First of all, such rules only deal with the externals. When Jesus was talking about man-made rules, he quoted Isaiah 29 and verse 13, where the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. That's what it's like. Human rules only go skin deep. They don't get to the heart. Human rules inform what we do with our mouths, what we do with our lips, what we do with our hands. They deal with the externals and they don't deal with the heart. But God, of course, is interested in the heart. In 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, it says, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, at the heart. Within this passage that we've read today, we've seen that rules have the power to condemn. Mike explained this properly last week about the written code, verse 14, with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. These were the rules of the Jewish people in particular which had the power to tell people that they were wrong. (laughs) But that was it. That was their power to clarify that sin had taken place. They had a power to condemn, but they lack the power to change us, which is what it says in verse 23. Such regulations have the appearance of wisdom but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There's a a Christians Against Poverty centre in the city of Oxford. Uh, It's run by the Oxford Vineyard Church, who's doing a great thing. I was having a chat a couple of months ago with Andrew Myatt, who is the pastor of the Vineyard Church, about the work of Christians Against Poverty. And he said something to me which initially was a bit surprising, but then made sense totally in the light of this teaching. He said that what they got were phone calls from people saying, we're in debt, we're in trouble, please would you come and help us? So they'd send the CAP, Christians Against Poverty, worker, who would go and go through people's finances with them and explain to them what they needed to do to get out of debt, which inevitably involves drawing up a budget in which there's a bit of money left over with which to pay off your debt and then 
sticking to your budget and paying off your debt. That's how it works. So time and time again, they find that they do this for people and then people say, oh, I'm not going to do that. I don't, I don't want to change my spending. I just want to get out of debt. I'll just get another credit card. don't want to change. That would be quite awkward. And that's what it's like. Someone can come with rules. They can be actually... Not all rules are unhelpful. Some rules are good guidance to us, actually. This is not being against all kind of guidance and wisdom and rules. But man-made rules do not have the power to change the heart. When you speak to someone who is in debt because in their heart they're happy to spend more than they've got, because that's what gets you into debt, and you say, this is how you can do things differently, follow this, and you'll be right. It doesn't change the heart. That's how it is with man-made rules. Now, as I just hinted at, rules are not... In the New Testament, rules are not all seen as bad. Human traditions are not simply bad. Uh, Paul makes it really clear that such rules need not be banned. In Romans 14, he wrote to the church in Rome, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to the Lord. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So it's not about trying to rid uh, the, whole, the church of any kind of tradition of any sort. Uh, it, Lent. This is the first Sunday in Lent. Isn't it? I wonder, is anybody giving anything up for Lent? This is not a trick question. I'm not going to jump on you. It's all right. Is anyone giving anything up for Lent? Is anyone giving up anything other than chocolate or Facebook for Lent? <laughs> ah, I'm intrigued. Does anyone want to tell us what they're doing? No? You're giving up wine? Coffee. Coffee? Okay. It's just interesting to see what's going on. Now, we had a conversation. I'm giving some things up for Lent. Um, I, uh, we're having a conversation over dinner uh, with our girls about Lent and giving things up. And uh, our Amber, who's quite bright, I suppose, really, as this evidence is, said, all oh, she said, she said, can I give up fruit and vegetables for Lent? <laughs> Um, he who abstains does so to the Lord he who abstains does so to the Lord but as long as it's freely chosen if pressure is put upon you if you're in um, a missional community where everyone is fasting a day a week in Lent okay, uh, and you feel under pressure to do so uh, that's not good. <laughs> if you freely choose to fast a day a week, or fast all 40 days of Lent, I mean, Jesus did. Well, not Lent, it didn't exist until, you know, but <laughs> he fasted for 40 days. Um, it's not about banning these rules, but if we insist on the rules, it actually divides people. 
It's what happened in the early church. When people insisted that you couldn't eat this and you couldn't drink that, what it meant was that people could not all sit down together for a meal. Because some people were happy to eat everything and some people wouldn't eat certain things and they didn't want to touch it and they couldn't go near it. And so the church divided at mealtimes into different groups of people. They couldn't all eat together. And so if people have special ways of encountering God, I've got this particular way that works for me, but if it doesn't work for someone else, then if you insist on doing it your special way, then it serves to break up the worshipping community. So having ways of doing things, that's not the problem. The problem here is when we insist that the Christian community all follow a particular way of doing things. And as we've already read, uh, all of these man-made rules are temporary. I've already read verse 22. I'll read it again. These are all destined to perish because they're based on human commands and teachings. A similar sort of thing is said in verse 17 where it says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. These kind of rules, and he's especially thinking here about Jewish rules, uh, they're temporary. They're not the real thing. They're only meant to last for a little while. Uh, So our attention ought to shift from the rules to Jesus himself. The reality, it says in verse 17, is found in Christ. If we're caught up in thinking about, what do I need to do? What do I need to sort out in order to get the blessing of God? To fit in to whatever it may be. If we're caught up in that, it distracts our focus from Jesus himself. And Paul's saying, look, those things are shadows. Those things are fleeting. They're, gonna, they're, they're not going to last. The thing that lasts and the thing that is reality is Jesus, the person, <laughs> not a thing, the person who matters is Jesus. And obsession with rules cuts us off from Christ. So let's not get engrossed by the shadows. Let's not spend too much time trying to think all this stuff through and work it all through. But instead, and this is where the prophetic thing is hugely helpful, let's get connected to the head and his body. Now, please, uh, if, you, if you've closed your Bible since opening it earlier, open it again. This is a really key verse. Verse 19. See, a person who gets caught up in all of those things, who goes on great, says in verse 18, anyone who goes on about, in great detail about all that kind of stuff, has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. What is the body of Christ? We are. Yeah, the church is the body of Christ. So as we come to Christ and we each connect to him, actually we come together. We're brought together. We find ourselves in Christ and we look around and we realize there's quite a lot of other people here too. 
we're in Christ together. Actually, we can't be in Christ alone. We can only come to him and find ourselves with loads and loads of other people who, praise God, have chosen to do the same thing. Being in Christ, being connected to the head, means that we are together. Think of the image of the vine. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you connect into Jesus, you are a branch in the vine. There's a lot of other branches. The vine is made up of all those branches. There is no uh, relationship with Christ that doesn't involve relationship with his people. It's as simple as that. I'm gonna, I don't like to do this generally, but I'm going to just sort of say that what it says in verse 17, you know, sometimes, sometimes the Greek in which the New Testament is written is just, you translate it word for word and it's all fine and very straightforward. Sometimes, like in every language, there are bits that are a little bit harder to translate, which is why, as a good practice, you don't have to be intimidated by that, but rather than just having one version of the Bible, if you read, in, if it's something you're trying to study, if you read several different versions, then between them, they'll capture the meaning of those things that are a bit harder to translate. Because if it's a bit harder to translate, it means, well, it, maybe this phrase in English would work best. Maybe that phrase in English would work best. None of them quite gets it. But kind of somehow, if, you've, if you see what choices different people have made, you kind of get the full picture. So we don't have to be intimidated by this. But actually, verse 17 is one of these, one of these places. In the NIV, it says, these are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The Greek literally says, these things are a shadow of which was to come. The body of Christ. It's what it actually says in Greek. It doesn't say the reality is Christ. It says the things that are to come, comma, the body of Christ. The contrast is between the shadow and the body. We have a shadow of a body. So it's a kind of play on words in the Greek. Don't get caught up in the shadows. Christ, the body of Christ, is the reality. But the body of Christ is is us. So it's kind of in here, in several different places, that the reality of life lived with God is not just me plugging into Jesus by myself. The reality is a body connected to the head. That, that's the reality that matters. And that is the thing which is not temporary, but which will last for all eternity. That's pretty good. Okay, let's recap. Man-made rules, Christ our head. Man-made rules have no power to help us. You've read that already. Jesus, this is our therefore, was therefore, verses 13 to 15, Jesus saves us. We read all about it. Forgiveness, cancelled the written code, nailed it to the cross, disarmed the powers that were against us. Jesus saves us. The rules can't save us. They can just tell us what we're doing wrong. Which is kind of helpful. It's better than not even knowing that you're doing it wrong. But only Christ can save us. Man-made rules divide people. They get you sat on different meal tables or in different churches. 
Or maybe in the same church but not talking to each other because you don't think each other are very spiritual. <coughs> maybe that happens. Um, but Christ, you see, Christ connects us. As we come to him, the head, we form the body and we are held together by ligaments and sinews, which speaks of our connectedness one to another. Uh, Man-made rules focus on individual success uh, or failure. Uh, When you are thinking about the rules that you have to follow as a person, you can either end up doing well and meeting the requirements and going, look at me, aren't I great? Look what I've done, which is pride. Or you can go, woe is me, I've failed, I'm rubbish, which is despair. So rules take us either towards pride or despair, which is not very good after all. But Jesus causes us to grow together. That's what it says in verse 19. Uh, The whole body grows as God causes it to grow. So the point is, quite simple really, that let's, let's just plug into Jesus together. Like all of us. Let's all plug into him together. I say that any other way. Together, let's plug into Jesus. It's, it's really simple. It's really simple. It's just about getting reconnected with Jesus, but recognizing that we do that as one body. So, let me go back a little bit. I started out by saying something about judgment and criticism. And I believe that there are some people here, some of us need to forgive people who've spoken judgment over us. If any of those words of knowledge that I shared landed for you, uh, you, you really need to thank God that he's brought it up and forgive whoever has done you harm. But actually, there are many more of us, I think, who, uh, we'll have a moment's quiet in a minute, need to just stop and uh, just ask if there's anybody that we need, to be, we need to forgive in order to be free. That's one thing that we can do as we break bread. The other thing is that there are some people here who have been trying to make themselves acceptable to Jesus. Actually, you've been, you've been trying really hard to follow some rules or other, whether it's reading your Bible enough or actually turning up here this morning is part of doing something that you think you're supposed to do in order to make yourself acceptable to God. Do you, do you ever hold back from praying because you don't think you've been spiritual enough lately? Do you ever think that God won't help you because you've not been good enough. The truth is that we don't have to clean up our act in order to come to Christ. (laughs) Instead, Jesus receives us whatever state we're in, and then he sets about the task of cleaning us up. We need to get it the right way around in our thinking. So, come all who are thirsty, not all who are thirsty and reasonably sorted. Just come. It's totally open. Come, all who are thirsty and in a right mess.
<laughs> come. You who have no money, come and buy. Enjoy all that Christ is providing for you. So, Simon's is going to lead us in breaking bread. And as we do so, let's enjoy the forgiveness of Christ. And let's extend the forgiveness of Christ to all to whom we need to speak words of forgiveness this morning.